What's up? Welcome back to Where Are All My Friends. This week is with Lauren Wells, who is a music lawyer and a very dear friend of mine. Him and I have worked together on a lot of different deals. We've done a lot of projects together. I really respect him. I think his perspective and his genuine excitement to be doing what he's doing in music is remarkable. This is a particularly cool episode to me because we kind of did something different this week. He tells his come up story, he tells finding that lane, and he tells it very well. And that's about the first 40 minutes of this episode. On the back half, right around that 40 minute mark, we get into a really direct kind of Q&A type discussion, taking it from the early days of any artist project all the way up to like a very successful career in music, having a whole team getting signed, all of that. We cover how to find the right lawyer, how to find a lawyer in the first place, how to negotiate the right record deal for your project, the differences of record deals, how record deals have evolved now and being in 2020, how to tell when you as an artist or you as a creative have hit your ceiling and it's time to take on help and find a team advice to just anybody chasing a dream he has so many gems of knowledge that he shares which was absolutely incredible so if you are liking that format where i kind of do the first half of their story and the second half of more actionable advice please let me know i'm really always trying to hear from y'all the other piece that i have is if you do like this if this podcast is helping you if it's entertaining you for an hour on a drive whatever it is the biggest favor that you can do for me is sharing it any type of telling your friends sharing it on social media taking screenshots tagging Any bit of that has been so massively helpful for helping the podcast grow. I haven't really pushed any type of like paid advertising, anything like that. And the show has grown so much just by organic word of mouth. So one, thank you if you've already done that. And two, it's the biggest favor that you can do for me if you are listening and liking this. So if you're down to take a second and share it, subscribe, leave a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, I promise you it means the world to me. With that said, let's get into this episode. It's a good one. Where are all my friends sitting down with Lauren Wells? What's up? Now, this has been a really fun experience for me doing the whole podcast thing. I've had the chance to meet a lot of new people, hear new stories. But in this case, you are a longtime friend. That's right. And you are the first music attorney that I've had on the podcast. And this is a big deal to me. Yeah. Because out of all of the professionals that I've had the chance to work with, you love your craft. You are so good at your craft. I have so much fun talking to you. The amount of hours we've spent on the phone where you'll just like dig in and explain to me the the most intricate royalty point or something like that. Like, I just feel like you truly care. That's everything I want on this podcast. And I I just, I'm excited to hear more of your story. I know bits of it, but like this episode to me, I'm so hyped. I'm excited to be here, man. Thank you for being here. You're here because of the Grammys. You've had an incredible year. That's right. Um, You have a lot of your clients that are nominated. So it's a really cool reason for you to be in LA. We've got two. We've got two. Oh, is it two? It's just two, but it's... (laughs) Okay. A, total of, a total of four four Grammys between the two of them. I see. Okay. You were yeah. telling me, as you were telling me, I was like, wait, no, there's more than two. That yeah, no, sense. no, just just the two. No, 2020s, uh, 2019 uh, coming into 2020 has been uh, just a really interesting process. And, you know, when you do something like whether you're a manager, whether you're an agent, whether you're a lawyer, you, you have to put in a lot of time. 
you have to put in a lot of time of doing a lot of stuff where you don't necessarily see the results immediately. And you have to just expect that down the line, you're going to see those. And I, I said this a long time ago, I've been saying this for a decade, it's, it's all about the long game. Yeah. You know, it's just all about doing, doing the good work with the good people. Yeah. And in the long term, if you keep doing that, if you're good at it, you're smart at it, you're, you're, you work hard at it, it's, it's just time or luck yeah. uh, or a little bit of both. Um, and so, to, you know, last, I've been at this for a bit, you know that. I've known you for a minute. In the yeah. last 18 months has really been a really exciting time for us um, just across the board, not just the Grammys, but just all the different work that we do. We've really been seeing a lot of the fruits of the efforts. Yeah, dude. Fantastic. Well, like that's the exact thing is like, you've always been the same person. You've always had that same work ethic, but the amount of pieces that have clicked and just have come together recently, it's like, it feels exciting from afar. So I think that this is the perfect time to sit down and do this podcast. So before we get into any type of like your beginning days, yeah. for anybody who doesn't know you or just to paint the picture of like what you've been up to, like yeah. tell me a couple of your clients, like obviously you have to keep a balance right, if you can't right. say too much, but yeah. tell me some of the things that you're excited about. Tell me some of yeah. like the bigger clients that you've been able to work with or just anything like paint yeah. that picture of right now. Yeah, no, I feel like I'm very lucky that the firm that I work at, there's just three of us. Yeah. Uh, we're all very close and we have a very diverse roster and we represent everything from the estate of Chuck Berry, who is... You know, uh, as, as John Lennon said, if there was another word for rock and roll, it's Chuck Berry. You know, and we've been able to be involved in that estate since before it was an estate when he was alive. Yeah. Um, we got to be the attorneys who worked his final record, the last record he put out before he died, his first record in 40 years um, that, you know, was just, you know, really universally acclaimed. And, you know, we, we've got to do that. Um, you know, at the same time, you know, from from the legacy stuff, we got to work with contemporary artists, my my guy Trevor Daniel is just absolutely exploding right now. I've been with him for almost two years, seeing him from the very beginnings to now being number 75 in the world on Spotify, uh, which is really unreal. It's really, it's amazing to see that sort of stuff happen. Um, yeah. But, you know, and everything, you know, our, our Grammy nominees this year are Tank and the Bangas and Best New Artist. And we've got PJ Morton for four different categories, including Best R&B Album, which I think that um, he actually has a real shot at. Um, and then where I know you from is... I came up in punk rock. We'll get to this later on. Yeah. But I would say I came up in punk rock first as a teenager, figuring out who I was. And then second, as a lawyer, figuring out who I was. <laughs> um, and both times, it was really punk rock that like helped me find that path. And so, you know, as you know, I work with a lot of artists in that, in that world. Silverstein, uh, Citizen, like Moss Flames, The Contortionist, yep. um, stuff from the little, the little artists to the big legacies. Um, I'm really, you know, I, I don't want to sound cheesy, but as you know, I'm a pretty cheesy dude and I feel very lucky to be a part of their paths, whether it's someone like Silverstein where, you know, getting to work on this new record for them, which I think is going to be phenomenal. It's cool. Like you really yeah. do have that passion. And also another genre that you didn't touch on too much, but you helped me with a lot of the stuff with version three. I know oh, you right. represent Gucci Highwaters. Yeah, that's true. Like, you really, you work in a lot of different genres. Oh, I mean, I should, I should, I should get into that. I mean, we do country too. I've got a songwriter out in Nashville who's written song, singles for Jake Owens, um, Eli Young Band, Morgan Waller, Florida Georgia Line. Um, you know, we've, we've got everything. I've got, you know, we've got one of my hip hop producers has a quadruple platinum hit. It's, it's interesting. Like I said, you know, I, th I feel like the diversity of the genres is really what makes it exciting. You know, we can, I can work on something that's a legacy. That's something that's, you know, you know, like a, like a Chuck Perry. I can work on, you know, we've, I've got a client, CU Space Cowboy, this, you know, really kind of crazy off time hardcore band, um, that's just kind of coming up in that world. And the fact that in one day I can simultaneously be having to deal with universal for a legacy estate. And then dealing with pure noise for, you know, a crazy hardcore band. That's what makes this so much fun. And that's, you know, I, I'm a super lucky dude. 
yeah. yeah. And I think that like the, the underlying piece out of all of the music you work in is it's just, it's things you care about. Like I've Absolutely. never seen you be too cool for like a, spur, a certain genre or a certain artist. It's like, if, if it's passion, if you feel something there, you're excited to take it on. So to be able to speak with somebody in your field that has this much of a diverse understanding and knowledge to me is like, so perfect for this. And I, I almost say this, like, you know, one of the things I love about having all the different genres is, you know, it, it, working with all the different genres is, is what you see is that there's these certain um, kernels that exist among all artists, whatever genre they are, there's yeah. this certain passion that they have. And there's a way that as a member of the team, you can just really get behind it. Even if it's a genre you don't care about, even if it's a genre you don't like. I mean, when I listen to music on my own time, yeah. I listen to like Philip Glass and like <laughs> minimalist stuff, you know, yeah. like my own personal tastes are pretty out there at this point, but I, I can get behind anything because you see them, you see the way that they love what they do. And to be a part of that, again, I'm a cheesy dude. And to just <laughs> play a role in these artists' lives and their artistic experience to be able to help guide them in the right in the right way to make sure that they are, you know, at least you know, taken care of, that they're not getting themselves in bad situations. Uh, and I'm one of those lawyers that when I get really into it, I'm on the strategy calls. I'm trying to figure out how can we, you know, make this record the best record that it can be, uh, you know, from a from a business perspective, not yeah. from an aesthetic perspective. I'm not going to tell you to rewrite a chorus or something like right. that, even though sometimes I think you should. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to tell you to. Well, that's amazing. So now we've explained kind of like who you are and really like that part of it. This part is fun for me because I want to hear where this all comes from and like your early days of finding just all of these different things that you've done because yeah. it's not like you started as a music attorney. You've had no. so many different things. So how did you get to here? You know, it's funny. It's one of those questions that's impossible to answer without taking up our entire time. Yeah, um, I know. It's a tricky know, one. <laughs> because, you know, it, it starts in, you know, it, it, it certainly starts in the punk rock world in the 90s. You know, I grew up in central Illinois, yeah. small town. What's wonderful about punk rock in small towns is you, you end up knowing everyone in the nearby town. So your punk rock scene isn't this little town that you live in. It's, so I grew up in a town called Normal, Illinois. It was actually called it's Normal, called Normal Illinois. Illinois. Yeah. Incredible. Which I will say, the one funny joke about Normal Illinois is if you don't know there's a Normal Illinois and you're like driving past it and a cop will pass you and on the side it will say Normal Police and you'll just be like, like what's the, is the next one is like the weird, the weird police, like the upside down police, the like, what other kind of police are there? What kind of police do they have in the town? Um, but like, you know, you like, so in Normal Illinois, we had our little scene and you know, we had our, our, our punk bands, but there was Clinton, Illinois nearby. There was Lincoln, Illinois. There was Springfield. There was Morton. There was Macomb. There was Peoria. And there was just this whole vibrant scene of people in all different walks of life from all different backgrounds, all these different towns. And you'd have these shows together and, you know, you would, you'd, you'd learn how to make things happen. You know, you wanted to see a band. They're not going to come play Macomb, Illinois. Yeah. So you had to throw the show. Yeah. You know, and it's actually something that I will say as a bit of an aside, it's a reason why in the music industry, you see at all levels, in all genres, there's people who grew up in punk rock and grew up in the DIY world. It's because you get used to having to make the things happen that you want to see happen. And once you become, once you joined the music industry on the business side. You know, I say there's like talent and industry side. Once you yeah. join on the industry side, it's all about making things happen. Yeah. And when you've had this history of doing that from these like no corn towns or wherever, it 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 builds who you are. And then I so it's like I am still in many ways that same kid who, you know, was so eager to bring down Baxter from Chicago to come play in Normal Illinois, not knowing that Tim McGillrath would go on to front rise against and become this huge Rockstar, I mean, that, it's, it's, I'm still that same kid. He was so in a band called Baxter Yeah, first. Baxter was actually, so it's funny. It's like Baxter was like my favorite band in high school. That's amazing. They were the band that like kind of 
opened my eyes to the, the limits of what punk rock could be. It wasn't just power chords and, and snotty vo vocals. It could be undistorted parts. It could be screaming parts. It could be whining parts. It could be really unique. Actually, when Rise Against first came out, I hated them. Because you were like, this isn't Baxter. Because it wasn't Baxter. That's funny. It was nowhere near Baxter. So at what age did you really find music? 13. 13. Yeah, and I can tell you I can tell you the moment I found music. Please, yes. It was 120 minutes, um, the, the show on MTV, and it was Green Day Longview, the single Longview. Uh, I remember just staying up uh, late with my sister and watching it, and that video came on. And this was at a time when alternative rock was a thing. You know, there was Nirvana, there was Pearl Jam, there was Smashing Pumpkins, and but there was something about Green Day and the way that Billy Joe sneered when he sang that just was different. And I connected to that, I and... I got so into them, and uh, I was on this is AOL days. I was in this AOL chat room, and someone said, "Hey, you know, if you really like Green Day, there's these singles that you can buy that have songs that are not on the album." And the idea of hearing a new Green Day song was so mind-boggling to me. So I went to the the record store that was in downtown Normal. It's an indie store, and I go to them. I say, "I hear that there are Green Day singles that have songs that I've never heard before." And he's like, "Not only that, did you know that there's two other albums?" So he takes me to the section and shows me their first two records. And I blew my mind. I go home and I listen to them. I just become obsessed with Green Day. And I just go back a week later and I say, hey, these albums are on this label called Lookout Records. Are there any other bands on that label? And the dude was like, absolutely there are. He took me to Avail, their record Dixie. He showed me Screeching Weasel. And literally because of that, I realized that I didn't have to care about all those things I had been pretending to care about. Sports, you know, um, you know TV. I didn't care about those. I suddenly had this thing. Yeah. And what's funny is, I don't know that guy's name at the record store. Yeah. I never, I, I have no idea who he is. He has no idea that he literally changed my life. Isn't that fucking crazy? It is. Isn't that nuts that those moments, because it's like so fast. I was like, so when did you find music? And you knew. Yeah. And that guy and that, like, that's just so crazy to me because I think that all of the realest people in this know those moments. And it's just, for certain people, they'll go to the record store, they'll get an album and they'll be like, cool, thanks. And that's it. Don't right. think about it. And then the other people, it's like, this is everything. Absolutely. So I, I'm obsessed with hearing those moments. Yeah, and from that on, it's just like, I realized I didn't have to pretend to care about the other stuff. I also, you know, I had been a really shy, awkward, nerdy kid. Yeah. Um, I came from a very academic family in a town that was, you know, frankly, pretty white trash. My block was, you know, we weren't very well off as a family. We were in a neighborhood that was like scared of a lot of the kids on my block, you know? Well, yeah. Um, and it was, you know, I just, but I was a really uncomfortable kid. And, you know, punk rock was literally the thing. I think a lot of people have this story that was like, oh shit, I can just be a weirdo and I can have my people. Like I can have my world. And so then you discover those people. And then that's what I'm saying when I'm talking about all those towns nearby, suddenly it's not just the kids at your high school. It's now you're part of a local scene. Okay, now it's not just a local scene. Now it's a regional scene. Next thing you know, you're playing shows in all those towns. You get to know all those bands. It just becomes, it, became, it becomes so important so quickly. Dude, you just true put that genres. so well. Like to me, like I, I draw such a parallel because it was like, even though I had my different ways of finding it, it was like being that kid that didn't feel like you fit in. And then you find, you go to a show, you find these kids that you get along with, you find out there's other shows, there's other music. And then all of a sudden the other stuff doesn't matter. And you find your people in a community and like whatever that is, like, it's just amazing. Dude, I'll say what I've learned in my career now, working with people from all different types of genres is that that experience is not specific to punk rock. No. That experience is true of hip hop kids. Yeah. That experience is true of jazz nerds. That experience it, is true of everybody. That's like, the thing. You find your people and you're just like, there we go. Yeah. And, and we were talking about this before the podcast started and I feel like it's just a funny uh, parallel. We'll get into it later, but it's like, 
how genres are evolving so much now and it doesn't have to be specific right. genres. It's like, to me, again, that's so cool. And of course, it doesn't matter what genre. It's like the community is what matters. It's these people that's that feeling when you find it and find out there's other people there. Damn it, that's good. Yeah, and I, you know, I want, you know, for people who are making music now, who are in their 20s, in their teens now, you know, I, I don't want them to take for granted the fact that they exist in a world, like you just said, where you know, genres are not so finely defined like they were. And the, the, the one negative side of this story about punk rock was that back then, you know, it was punk rock and that was it. You, know, you didn't get to pick other stuff. You couldn't like punk rock and then also like even a grunge song. Like the, the story that I always say is like when I was in eighth grade, when I picked punk rock, there was this girl whose last name also started with a W, her locker was next to me and she picked grunge and oh. we had been friends. And I remember when Kurt Cobain died and there had been this rift between us because she was now grunge and I was punk rock. And I remember kind of saying, should I console? She was crying. I was like, should I even console her? And in retrospect, That's the insane. idea that like the genres were so harshly defined yeah. that she picked grunge, I picked punk, Oops. Um, that she picked grunge, I picked punk, and then therefore there was now this like rift between us. That's something that kids say don't have to deal with because you know, you can listen to any genre of music at any point in time, just put it in Spotify, put it in YouTube music, whatever it is you listen to. I still listen to Pandora because I'm an old dude. Uh, you know, like you can listen to whatever you want. And that was just something that we didn't have. And so there was negatives to some of these things. Like the punk rock world was so wonderful for me, yeah. but it was also somewhat exclusive in, in some respects, you know? And, yeah. you know, it's good for us, I think, as we get older to, to recognize those things and to like take those memories and remember the positive, but also reconcile the negative. Totally. And make something better for the next wave. Absolutely. Which yeah. I think, you know, today's kids, they don't have to worry about as much. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So you find music then, yeah. and then you get to a point where way before law, you're playing in bands, right? Yeah, I mean, you, my 90s experience, I mean, I, I went through the 90s genre by genre. Like I started out in pop punk, yeah. you know, in the mid 90s with the Screeching Weasel yeah. uh, and Riverdales and, you know, that sort of stuff. And then when emo, the Midwestern emo came out, like, you know, American football opened up for my high school band oh. because, oh. We, because we were high school kids that had a lot of fans. So... You know, you I know, can't who, believe that that was just said out loud. Yeah. That's unreal. <laughs> yeah, it's funny, you know, and so, and we, you know, the emo thing and then late 90s hardcore, like I got into that at this, I was straight edge at the time and vegan. Yeah. And again, a lot of this notice is finding that, the finding your place. Totally. And finding your community. And I think I struggled a lot back then, even in the punk rock world, I still felt a little bit like an outsider. And so it was a lot of it was trying to find that place. Um, but, you know, I mean, my 90s experience, I mean, literally it's pop punk into emo, into hardcore. Now, all before any of it was big. So like, you know, in 1999, I was playing, you know, I was in one of those hardcore bands in, the, in central Illinois that played with every single hardcore band of note of the era. But we didn't know about the industry. You know, we didn't know about how to become a part of what these bands were a part of. Yeah. So I got to play with every single one of them in all the different towns in central Illinois, but never got to make an actual name for ourselves. Yeah. Um, that took much longer for me to figure out. That's why I get so jealous of people like you, frankly, that like figure out how to do things practically at a younger age because I, I, for a long time, just lived in this bubble of playing these shows but not really making any effort to be a part of the industry writ large. Well, what you just said to me there, like the way you said that kind of messed me up because I get it. Like you can do, you can go through all the same motions, you can be great at what you do, but you do have to have this awareness of the industry depending on what your goals are. Right. But like as you start to understand that, as you start to meet people, you can kind of have a very different experience in life and career because if you don't, you will kind of just go through the motions and yeah. 
play the local shows. Yeah. And that's, so that's, and that's, that's what you did. did. And, 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 you know, we, we were one of those bands. I was always in those bands that would be big in our hometown. And, and, and the touring bands would come through and be like, you guys are sick. What are you, this is amazing. Send us your demo. But then we didn't know how to get a good demo. So we'd be like, oh, they said send us a demo. We'd go and pay some shithead, you know, 500 bucks to record 13 songs in a day. Yeah. We'd oh my send God. it to them and never hear back from them. Of course. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it, it, it's, <laughs> I don't know, it's one of those things. I just, to some extent, I think it's better that I didn't figure it out then. I think my life now is great. And yeah. it, I, I cherish the 25 years that I have been, whether I was peeking over the fence and looking into the music industry's backyard, you know, um, eventually I moved up to Chicago, tried to be a rock star, got to, you know, work with the big lawyers and the big managers at the time and do that sort of stuff. But, you know, I look back on my 25 years of doing this and, now I don't regret any of it. Like I, yeah. I love the, I, I, and to be honest, and my wife kind of criticizes me for this sometimes that I romanticize the failures. Yeah, um, because I cherish those failures. To be honest, I do. Well, it's crazy you say that because I think about that, and it's maybe you have so much genuine excitement about what you do now. What if you had had so much success early? Maybe you'd be jaded by the fact that you did have so many failures. Now that things are getting better, you understand it. You can look back and be like, wow, I learned so much in those failures. And again, one of the coolest parts of this podcast and hearing those stories is that perspective from people who are accomplished now and can say that. I feel like is gas for the people that are grinding in it right now and don't know what happens next. Like that's encouraging to be like, yo, yeah, cool. I'm stoked that I failed for all this long because yeah. it got me to where I'm at now. No, I, I always like to remind people that, you know, people that I know who are oftentimes in their mid twenties, but much more aspirational than I was at that age. Back then I just wanted to play shows. I, I didn't know how it happened. You know, um, uh, I always like to tell people that, you know, I started my law practice at the age of 30 with zero clients, three contacts in the music industry, and no revenue. You know, that was at the age of 30. You know, so it's like, it took me so long to figure that out. You know, and, and you don't have to know what you're going to do. I would say your 20s is your time to go be broke and try stupid shit. And maybe you'll succeed. And that's great. But if you don't, that's okay. I mean, like now at 38 with two kids and a mortgage, like now, if I fail, <laughs> all right. Well, now my life's fucked. You know, I always say maybe like, it's a little worse. Your twenties is the time to get your heart broken and to fuck up. Yeah. Because now, at my age, if I get my heart broken, that means I'm getting divorced. You know, that means I'm, <laughs> yeah. I have to fight over kids. If yeah. I fuck up, yeah. that means like my life is you know. You have it, two little beings that right. rely on you for food. Luckily, That's different. I had a long time of getting my heart broken and fucking up. And, yeah, yeah, and I love those memories. That's awesome. So, okay, so then tell me, at what point do you start finding law and where do you start studying that and how does that transition? So again, these are a lot, I have like straight up, I remember the exact moments for a lot of these things. I love that. Um, so, you know, law was not something I ever fathomed. You know, I don't have, I don't have any rich relatives. Like I don't have any lawyers that I'm related to. I'm not Whoa. related to any doctors. You know, I, I am the only lawyer that I know of in my extended family. I mean, as far as I know in my family, I'm the only one. I think that's still true. I've been saying that since I've been a lawyer. It's been about 10 years. So maybe there's someone out there I don't remember. If there's any know. other Wellses, hit yeah. us up. Yeah. Correct us. Sorry, Wellses, Graysdorfs, Lippmans, uh, whatever. I'm sorry if you're lawyers. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I was in a band in Chicago. And it had one of those perfect names to be able to tell the story later on and have it work perfectly. It was called One Life. You know, so I got to put one life behind and start another. You know, things like that. Um, 
you know, so, but it was called One Life. And it was a band that it was, I had been playing in punk rock and in hardcore and, but I was this really ridiculous performer, like spin kicking off the bass drum. And like, I was you one were, of those dudes. Yeah. That like, you, you know, were I was a living it. Yeah. 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 I was crazy. Um, like I used to be, when I was a singer in a hardcore band, like I would punch my mouth until it bled. Like I was crazy, dude. Um, yeah, I've had a fun life, man. I also did stand up comedy and shit. It's been fun. Um, what <laughs> you tried stand up yeah yeah no that's a whole other podcast i guess um i two. guess i'll come oh. back for that one um that'll be a short podcast because it didn't last <laughs> long enough <laughs> i didn't have any success at it um but and that's not true i had some success at it but um <laughs> i uh but no i mean i i was this kid that, and so like i became this guy that like people from chicago bands would come down and play with my college band um which was early 2000s but like this really interesting mix of technical hardcore but what we did, because that was when Dillinger Skate Plan was around, was first starting out when Bosch was around, when Norma Jean was around. Cool. Every Time I Die's first record, Burial Plot, Bidding War was like something that blew my mind. Um, and uh, but we heard all these, uh, you know, these discordant, uh, off-time hardcore bands and did the melodic version of that. And oh. which still, frankly, hasn't been done a little bit ish. Like when Thrice came out, we're kind of like that kind of touches on what we're doing, but it, that was way more poppy. Uh, and so we were one of those bands that, like, I became someone that people in like the Chicago scene knew. Because they'd come down, and they'd play with our band, and I'd be the dude fucking spin kicking off the bass drum and like kicking the audience and shit. And so, um, so when I moved to Chicago, I went to one party and I got roped into being this pop rock band that had a, a manager, had a lawyer, had you know, I had friends that were suddenly signing to major record labels. You know, you, you were know, starting and, to see yeah, it. And, and, and our scene, I mean, this was the world where the plain white tees came out of, and you know, at the time with Lucky Boys, Confusion was one of the big local bands. You know, oh my Fall, god, I love that band. Yeah, Fallout Boy was out of that scene. June. I'm trying to think of all the bands we know. The Academy is. Did you um, cross paths with Minardi at that time or no? Well, so interesting fact: Johnny Minardi's record label, um, what is LLR, it? Little LLR, Little League LLR, Records. Little League Records. We were the one band that turned him down. <laughs> sorry Johnny. that's awesome actually i don't know why i would apologize to johnny yeah uh, i should be my the band should be apologizing to me for that um, oh my god because I, I was like record deal let's do it even if it's you know some kid in the suburbs um but we thought we were hot shit and we had a manager who had recently been fired from slipknot that was her claim to fame um and uh but you know we had a lawyer and it was just kind of like you know he kind of talked to me one night i had this tendency uh i had been straight edge for a long time um and so when i joined this pop rock band I was like sure I'll do the drinking thing and um you know I'd get drunk and like go to the computer and like research shit you know at the party and like yeah. the band would all make fun of me and the lawyer just came up to me one time and he was like you know you're just like it's kind of like different than these guys you know it's just like something that's a little bit different about you and I remember just talking to him about what it was like to be a lawyer you know what the role of a music lawyer was um and uh it's kind of place that initial kernel in my head of something that I could do. Cool. What I really what really made it happen was my first date with my now wife. I made the mistake of telling her I was planning to go to law school, which she never let me forget. Um, and so eventually I ended up going to law school because she was like, remember that thing you said on our first date? Well, let's make that happen, make that happen. And, you know, uh, I was just saying this, it's a long, windy path because then I went to law school thinking I was getting out of the music thing. I'd been, I'd failed at it my whole life. You know, I'd never succeeded at it. And so I thought I was getting out. Well, never succeeded on a certain level, but clearly like you had had, you had had the look, you had been in all the bands, you had done a lot of it. But I'd, it was I'd just, always been a big fish in a small pond, but I like, it wasn't even a small pond. Like it was a puddle left after the rain. I see. Like, you I know, see. normal Illinois. Yeah. That's not even a pond. Yeah. You know yeah. Mean? So, so I, then law school, you thought you were getting out of it. I thought I was getting out of it. Um, what had happened was my, you know, longtime best friend, the kid that I had um, written music with when we were 13, that we'd, you know, 
broken into his father's liquor cabinet and gotten drunk and cried about getting our hearts broken. Perfect. The guy I got into emo with in the 90s. Amazing. Um, I like this you know, person. You know, um, he, uh, he didn't quit. Um, he didn't really, I, to be honest, he didn't really have other options. But he, uh, and he didn't quit. And he was in a band in Chicago that started to get a lot of attention. Oh, cool. Um, and, you know, they uh, had Atlantic Records fly out to, to see them play. And the A&R, who I still know, um, she straight up went up to him and said, look, I actually think you're great. I'm not into your band. If, if you get a new band that's around you, I can give you some money to put some demos together. And, you know, we'll have first refusal on it. But, you know, it's, we, we, we can figure some stuff out here. And I was in law school. And he, it was the summer after my first year. And frankly, I was terrified of the idea of having to be a lawyer because I didn't really... I didn't want to go to court. I didn't really know what lawyers did. I ended up basically in law school through, <laughs> I don't know, through basically a promise to my wife, uh, who right. wasn't my wife at the time. Um, but, um, you know, he, he called me up and said, hey, I've got this opportunity. I, I just remember writing songs. It had been a few years since we'd worked together. I need you on this. And so the summer after my first year in law school, I spent it up in Chicago writing songs with my best friend. Um, we recorded the songs. Um, we didn't get the deal from the songs, but the label, you know, we kept in touch with them. They referred us to a lawyer um, who happened to be based in St. Louis where I was going to law school. So then I got the opportunity to intern for him oh. while I was going through the process as an artist, uh, which gave me, you know, I always say, and I won't say who he is. We, we um, <laughs> very rocky history with, with this guy. Um, but the one thing that he did above all else was, sh was you know, just show me that it was possible mm -hmm. to work in the music industry, even in the path that I was going down. Like that, you know, because yeah. you know, the guy who had been the lawyer, my old man, wasn't like a real deal fucking music lawyer. I see. Yeah. You know, and this guy was. Yeah. And so he, he, he showed me that. Um, and so while I was in law school, I got to do that. I got to simultaneously, you know, play rock shows, you know, showcase for the majors and the stuff that, you know you want to do when you're those artists um and then also intern for someone who was doing the deals yeah and so it showed me that it was a thing that's so, a really cool series of events to happen yeah and was that that connected enough of a piece where you're like okay cool i can do this law thing and like here's where i do fit in and um you know it, <laughs> i think it was a real moment that i realized it was possible but i still didn't know how to get there yeah you know i still didn't know how to start yeah. Um, and so I did what um, I'd like to say what everyone does, but I think what almost no one does. Um, <laughs> and I just did some really weird shit. Um, and I was like, okay, well, I want to be uh, in the music industry. I, I want to be able to do this stuff. How do I stand out? How do I, how do I make myself different from other people? I figured that was what I had to do. Yeah. I had to be different from all the other people trying to do the same thing I'm trying to do. Um, and so I came up with this idea of creating what is still the world's largest database of music industry-related lawsuits called the Discography legal encyclopedia of popular music. I think I remember you telling me about this. Yeah, like when we first met, you were like, yeah, I did this big crazy thing. And I was like, damn. Yeah, well, at a point in my life, it was a huge part of who I was and what my story was. I've done so much since then that now I often will forget about it or will glance over it when I'm talking about yeah. what, my, what, I, what I've done. But I mean, I just, in my spare time, in between going to law school at Washington University in St. Louis, I was an articles editor on the Law Review. Yeah. Um, I was driving back and forth from Chicago and St. Louis, you know, every weekend trying to, you know, be a rock star. And in my quote unquote spare time that I somehow managed to find, I just started looking up. I grabbed a Rolling Stone encyclopedia of rock and roll. And I realized if I wanted to work in the music business, I had to know all the genres I knew nothing about. And I read it cover to cover. And then noticed about halfway through there was a lot of lawsuits in it and i was like i should look those things up i should find out like what 
you know, if those if those lawsuits exist in the databases that I now have access to, because I'm a law student. Yeah. Um, and so I finished it the first time, then I went through it a second time, and I just I found all the lawsuits and looked them up. When I looked them up, I'd say, oh, well, I wouldn't find that one. Yeah. But I'd find so I look up the Rolling Stones. I wouldn't find the one that was referenced in the encyclopedia, but I'd find ten more. And so I started making this spreadsheet of like, okay, what are all the different lawsuits? And so then what I ended up doing was going literally artist by artist, name by name, from Aaliyah to ZZ Top yeah. in the Rolling Stone Encyclopedia of Rock and Roll and looking up every single artist, gathering whatever lawsuits that there were that pertained to them and putting together this spreadsheet. And I ended up with about 1,500 entries in this spreadsheet. And I just had it. I didn't know what to do. And I showed one of my professors and he was like, you know, this is a little bit out there, but we have this uh, organization here called the Center for Empirical Research in the Law that does music or does legal data uh, legal empirical data and legal databases. That's what they Perfect. do. Perfect. And he's like, this is out there, but they might just like this. And, you know, he sent it to them and they called me in for a meeting. And then it, we arranged that after my, after I graduated from law school, before I did anything else, I spent a year building out this database. Now, don't get me wrong. I was making jack shit. I had, you know, a little bit of a stipend from the center. I had a nonprofit stipend from the school and that was it. And for about nine months, the, the, what would have been the following school year, I worked on this database up through May of 2011, and my, I in my head, I was going to finish it. It was going to get publicized. Rolling Stone was going to be like, oh my God, we want to do a book with you. I actually thought it was my way of avoiding being a lawyer. Wow. Because I was terrified of having to be one. Right. And so I, I thought it was my way of avoiding it, that I was going to be able to be this dude who writes about it and comments on it and has this database. And what happened was it, it came out, and like some people reached out to me, but it didn't do the thing I thought. It didn't lead me into getting a million job offers. It didn't lead me into you know that ideal career. It did, however, get me those first few people, um, a guy named uh, Pat Collins from a company called CSAC, which is one of the performing rights organizations in Nashville. He just hit me. I was like, I'm just intrigued and flew me down to Nashville and just said, I just want to meet you. And on that trip, I met with a number of people that I looked up. And it's like kind of from that first trip that I can actually start to trace where I am now some of those connections that I made, some of those people that I met on that trip um, are, were really the beginning of where this all started. What a cool lesson, right? Like you you think that it's going to go a certain way, you put all this into it, and then that unexpected variable actually is what comes of it. So there's this principle that I really believe in. It's called obliquity. And obliquity, um, there's an economist, John Kay, and he talks about it. And it's, um, and there's, it's also kind of mirrored in some, I'm not an Eastern philosophy dude, but it's mirrored in this Eastern philosophy called Wu Wei, which is indirect action. That, you know, if, say you want to make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Well, that can't be your goal. Right. Your goal, can't, your goal can't be to make a lot of money. Your goal has to be to make the best whatever it is that you make. Yeah. And that's how the money comes in. So you can't just say, I want this, yeah. this thing I'm looking at. I want to make a lot of money. Yeah. It's got to be, I want to make the best widget. I want to make, I want to be the best, this kind of professional. Yeah. Um, and it's more about those indirect goals that lead you to those eventualities. Um, and I really believe that kind of what got me here is a lot of that. A lot of just really focusing on doing a great job at the thing that I was doing. Yeah. Um, without necessarily, um, you know, I don't even know if I even had an end goal a lot of the time. Dude, I, I love that you say that though, because like the the parallel that I have to that is like be do have or have do be. Like the way that you like look at those things, it's like you want to have all this money, you want to have all this stuff. Well, that's at the bottom. Like you have to figure out what right. you want to be and what you want to do first. I love that. Yeah. That's like always my like way of looking at it, right? So it's like you are being this educated music attorney, right? right. You are doing 
practices of making this spreadsheet, making all of this database, learning law. And then through all of that, you have success later on. But that's like the the product. That's the, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when I did the database, there were several reasons for doing it. One of them was I thought it'd bring me notoriety. Yeah. But the other one is I read about 2,500 or skimmed at least 2,500 lawsuits involving musicians. Yeah. I summarized those cases. Yeah. I organized them. I created a searchable database where you could look up, I want to look up just when a manager sues an artist for breach of contract or when, you know, a, a label, sue, an artist sues a label. Yeah. yeah I, I, I went through and categorized them all and organized them all. And in the process, learned all those, you know, fl- surface, sur- not surface level, but ground floor things you have to learn to practice as a lawyer in the music industry. Yeah. And, and I, don't, I don't remember if that was my intent. I'd love to pretend my intent was to educate myself on all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was. I don't remember. But um, it certainly had that result. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then that makes sense. It's like through all of that, now here you are even more accidentally qualified as the music attorney that you are now. That's right. So, okay, so then tell, take me to, and apologize if I fast forward, but I, I have so many questions for you yeah, and all right. that. So take me to like starting your practice and like the year of like kind of just like, I don't know, like your first little bit of like, cool, you're a music attorney. Um, I don't know when I would say I actually became a music attorney. Okay. Um, you know, when I first came out of a finish, when I first finished the database mm-hmm. and I didn't get inundated with jobs, yeah. I freaked the fuck out. Yeah. And Ooh. I mean, I even like got down the road with a personal injury law firm because I was like, I'm a lawyer. I'm broke. Yeah. Like, I've been out for a year now working on this database, expecting yeah. to do all these things. And so, you know, I just didn't really know um, exactly what the future held for me and was um, just trying to figure the next steps out. And, um, you know, I, I I had some friends, you know, I obviously knew musicians, so I was doing a lot of free legal work for people. You know, none of them were really getting opportunities. Some of them were getting too old. Yeah. Um, I was just trying to connect with local artists. Um, but uh, a producer that I had worked with as an artist um, who had moved out to L.A. and moved back to Chicago, um, who had done a lot of great work with labels like Epitaph, Fueled by Ramen and Hopeless, things like that in the world that I had grown up in. But yeah. keep in mind, had not been in for about 10 years at that right. point, that yeah, punk yeah. rock world. You know, he came back to Chicago and a buddy of mine told me about it and I connected with him and he became my first client. He's the one who introduced me to Johnny Minardi. And I just give a shout out to Johnny, who's been there with me from the very fucking beginning. We, you know, we got it. We got it. Mean, you know, sometimes... That's how I know you. Yeah. I yeah. mean, along the way, you find these people who believe in you at a time when you don't necessarily know that you deserve it. Yep. And even in retrospect, I don't know necessarily that certain people who believed in me at certain times were even justified in doing so at the time. Now, maybe, maybe time has proven them correct. Um, but in the moment, I don't necessarily know that they were fully justified in it. But... Um, you know, at the time, you know, it was, it was that one client. And yeah. I, I remember someone saying to me at that time, you know, uh, and this was not a music lawyer, but just a lawyer who had a really successful practice. The hardest thing is getting your first client. Mm. But I already had my first client. I remember when they said that to me, that's like when I knew it was possible. I was like, okay, if the hardest thing is getting your first client, then I think I'm going to be okay. Yeah. And from there, it's just grinding. Yeah. And there it's just, you know, putting in more work than you're being paid for. It's lying to people about how much time you're putting into it, saying five hours when you spent 30 hours, you don't want to admit it because, you know, you had to go learn all these things you didn't know. Yeah. So by the wow. time you talk to them, you say, oh, yeah, I looked over the contract. It looks good. Here's what's good. This is this part's OK. We should try to change this. What they don't know is you had to go learn all of that in the last 48 hours. Holy. You know, and you barely slept because you just wanted to be able to knock it out of the park for them. It was just starting with that. And I, I remember, you know, that first fall 
of this is like 2012, I think it was, when I had my first like three legit a record deal, a distribution deal. Um, it was two record deals yeah. um, and a distro deal, and yeah. all of them were super small time. But I remember handling those, and I remember saying to my wife, who has believed in me so much from day one and has Amazing. put up through so much. But another shout out time for my wife for fucking yeah. believing me. I mean, if Dude. you can tell, look, we're all lucky. Anyone who succeeded in the music industry is lucky to have been believed in by people at key points in their life. Actually, that's and, and, so... And anyone who does not recognize that, don't fuck with them. Yeah. If you ever talk to anybody who is not just over the moon with they're just their gr gratitude to other people for what they've done, don't fuck with those people. Yeah, there's something fishy about yeah. that person. Because yeah, they're yeah. giving themselves credit. So um, getting back to that that fall I was just talking about, um, you know, I, I just remember that first fall, fall of 2012 when I was handing those first few deals and, and saying to my wife, after I do these, I will be in a different place. I will have been a guy who has done these deals. Yeah. Um, and, it, and, it, and it panned out. It, it was the truth. I finished those. And then, look, they were small time, but they led to other small time deals. And then from there, it's just kind of trading up a little bit, getting a little bit bigger. Um, by the next fall, that was when, by then, we were, we were working with, I was working with um, Fireworks. That was, you know, they kind of got me further into the punk rock world. Um, the hush sound. It was. Uh, you yeah, worked was, with them. Yeah, it was. It was a blast. And um, you know, right around then, my now law partner, you know, uh, who was at a big firm, has a partner at a big firm. He was a corporate guy at a big firm. Decided to leave that behind um, to try to start this crazy shit with me. Um, and we joined up and started a, our, our firm, Pearson Wells. Um, you know, he, he just again, you know, he had been in a big firm and and you know, working with, you know, Anheuser-Busch and big corporations and was now with this little punk rock lawyer. Um, and again, on that, you know, I, I could, I owe so much to him for that. But, you know, when, after we started to have at least enough of each of us individually, enough of national clientele, enough stuff that was working okay, it just made sense to join up and start a firm. And again, it was still struggles uh, for the next, uh, for the next year. Um, but each year I can pinpoint new areas of growth from that year, some you know big accomplishments that allowed us each year to always be bigger than the next year, always be getting, always be getting bigger and better clients, um, bigger and better deals, um, bigger and better reputation. And at a certain point, you know your name is just out there, and at a certain point, you're someone that people know. Yeah. Um, and you know, I feel like you know that, that that eventually, you know, if you're good at what you do, again, you work hard at it, you're smart about it, you know, you just keep at it, and it just grows. And you have to have patience. You got to play the long game, but you get to the point where you know, those clients, you know, that your, your, your practice becomes something that can feed itself in a way, you know, the next round, uh, the next round of artists, the next round of deals, it, it kind of comes out of the stuff that you're doing now. And yeah. it, it no longer is you're freaking out about when's the next <laughs> deal going to come in because they're just coming in. You're now someone that people recognize and will go to. Um, you're the name that is circling around and so yeah. it's like since 2012, you did your first deals really well, took the pride, did the five-hour deal that took yeah. 30, but made sure it was the perfect deal. And then it's like by doing that good work, I mean, what, 2012, like we're up to eight years from that, of that yeah. progression and the constant hard work and then the delivering a good product. So it's not like it was an overnight thing. No, absolutely not. But I mean, and, it and, was... And I will still say, I mean, from 2012 to 2015, there's still... You know, it's not like I was making a lot of money. Yeah, you were surviving. I was surviving. Yeah. I had a living. Yeah. You know, I had a career. Right. But it wasn't a lot of money. I right. was, you know, I was a lower middle class lawyer. Wow. Um, and, but, you know, I had, a, I, I knew I was building towards something well, and I enjoyed it. And it's funny because, like, I probably met you around 2015. 
Yeah, you probably met around. me when I was a little more comfortable. Yeah. yeah but I was definitely like, a little more comfortable by the time I met you. It was still like, I mean, like we were doing deals with indies that like you were like, oh, this is this is exciting because it's the first time I get to look at this contract. Yeah, They're like, you right, know, like, right. And, and I don't know. To this day, I still see you having that spark and that excitement. And it's cool to hear where that comes from. It's cool to hear that story because I've always kind of wondered that. Yeah. So thank you for yeah, that story. Yeah, absolutely. So the other part of this podcast that, and I'm specifically excited to ask you because I feel like it's rare to be able to have such like a cool, candid conversation with someone that knows as much as you do. And a lot of the people listening to this uh, might be artists and people that are trying to get to a new level that might have questions that have never worked with an attorney or, you know, like there's just a level, right? So I don't want to make it too broad, but for those listening who have yet to work with somebody as like a music attorney, what are some things, like like when do you know when to reach out? How do you reach out? Understanding deals these days, like all of the, you know, like the, if you yeah, could tell these yeah. things to the Lauren that was playing in bands that didn't know. Right. You know, it's actually a really tough question because- It's pretty broad. I can right. get more specific, but well, if that gives you something. Well, no, I mean, just the, the first thing is, you know, when- it's a bit of a catch twenty two, yeah. As an artist, and your 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 relationship with lawyers, mm. because lawyers should be the first person on your team. You know, they should I like be. that because the lawyer, and this is what differentiates a lawyer from everyone else in your team. A lawyer is bound by a rule, ethical rules that, in yeah. order to maintain their license, they have to follow. Yeah, conflicts of interest have to be disclosed to you. If they do not disclose conflicts of interest to you, they can lose their license. Yeah. Managers do not have that same problem. You know, yeah. record labels don't have that same problem. So lawyers should be the first person on your team because they are the person, the only person on your team who will be bound by rules not to fuck you. Yeah. Now, not that lawyers don't ever fuck people. Right. But they're not. They're bound by rules not to do so. Yeah. So it should be your first person on your team. Problem is, how do you get a lawyer on your team? Yes. And, you know, this is where what I often say to a lot of bands, you know, I, I will tell this, I always tell this story of, I spoke on a panel one time and someone came up to me from a local band and handed me their business card that they were the CEO of their band. Incredible. And I'm like, yeah, but are your songs good? Like, are you, what do you, like, what is your band? Like, you're a CEO of what? Yeah. Right? And, and so really, when you first start out as, as an artist, just be a fucking artist. Just focus on your music. You will, when it's time that you need people on your team, it's because opportunities are coming to you. When opportunities are coming to you, those people will want to be on your team. But for a lot of artists, they get a little bit bogged down in trying to find these um, little things that make them feel professional and feel accomplished, but don't actually contribute to their growth, such as setting up an LLC and setting yourself as the CEO. I'm sure they were very proud of that. And I'm sure they felt that that was a sign of maturity and professionalism. But if the music's no good, it doesn't fucking matter that you're a CEO. And so, you know, for artists right now, if you're like, if you, if, if you have been playing in your town for a year and still no one's coming to your shows, stop and ask yourself why. The problem is not the shows. The problem is not the venue. The problem is not the fans. You have to stop and ask yourself, why is no one coming to our shows? Why are people not connecting to our music? Don't distract yourself by going and setting up an LLC and making yourself the CEO and someone else the COO, which is what I think fans do. They see lack of growth in some areas, and so then they fill that hole with stuff that makes them feel like they're more accomplished. But pay attention to the results of what you're doing. If people aren't coming to your shows, then stop 
and ask yourself, why are the people not coming to the shows? And do not answer anything other than something that has to do with what you are doing. Because that's almost certainly what the issue is. <laughs> Breach. That was so well said. Thank you. If you can, so. I've said it to some people before. That, I, that was dialed. That was great. So, now, fast forward. That problem has been fixed. You're an right. artist and people are coming to you. You've perfected the product. People are starting to care. You're starting to get hit up. Maybe you're getting emails from managers, labels. Somebody's trying to put your songs out. Somebody wants to put your music on a channel. It's starting to feel real. Maybe you're making a little bit of money off of Spotify or, you know, whatever. Then, then what? By then, you know other artists who have lawyers. Cool. By the time that you have, you're touring, mm -hmm. you know, you're part of the touring circuit. By the time you have significant numbers on Spotify, by the time you are within your local scene, one of the going concerns, I will guarantee you in your local scene, there are other artists that are signed. There are other artists that are bigger than you who have managers and who have lawyers. And at that point, you go to them and you say, who are your lawyer? Who's your lawyer? Do you like your lawyer? What's your relationship with your lawyer? Find out about multiple lawyers if you can. Find out which one sounds like the best one, the one that's going to be, you know, you'll connect with the best. But, you know, don't, you know, shooting in the dark is tough. Like, and, and frankly, you know, if, if you don't have anything going on, yeah, um, then you don't really have need for a lawyer. If you have things going on, then you're not going to be operating in a vacuum. There is no music scene in this country where it's just one band, and that's the only one that has fans. Yeah. You know, there's always a scene and there's yeah. always some that are doing well. And, you know, it can be competitive, you know, between those bands. But those people are also the people who are going to give you great insight into what to do. Those are the people who are going to introduce you to managers and to agents and to lawyers and to record labels. Uh, you know, be one of those bands that other bands want to be friends yeah, with. Yeah, don't be shitty to your peers. Don't be shitty to your peers. Yeah. Um, because at that point, the really, I mean, and I don't want to sound like I think I'm cool, but like, I don't want a fucking email from my website. Like, I don't want you to find my website and then email me and just say like, yeah. hey, I found you online. Like, I want you to come through someone that I know. You know, at this point, like, if, unless you're referred to me by somebody that I know, like, I don't answer my phone if I don't recognize the number or I'm not expecting the call. Right. Like, I'll let it go to voicemail and I'll check it. And, oh, yeah. I need to call that person back. If it's some band that I don't know, I might go look them up on Spotify. And if they have shit numbers... Right, but if you get that it. referral, it just it it holds so much more weight. And a the band only with way numbers that comes in through a buddy of mine, yeah, that I will pay attention. Yeah, to. and the only way you're going to get that is if you're good to your people and if you've earned that. Yeah. Cool. So continuing down this because I love it. So you're at that spot. You're getting the referrals. So my next two questions: You have the option of a couple lawyers. How do you how do you know who's good and who's not? Well, unfortunately, you don't. Okay. Um, to be honest. You don't. Um, you can just go based on reputation. Um, there's a problem where, you know, you can go based on who their clientele is, mm -hmm. but um, there are some lawyers that I know out there who have some, have some decent artists that I wouldn't recommend. Say that, say that someone came to me and I couldn't represent them for some reason, and I had to pick another lawyer to refer them to. You know, there are some lawyers I know who have some great artists that I would not refer people to for a variety of reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, so how, how do you, you know, pick who to work with? You know, you just... You go with the one that you vibe with the best, um, the one who you think gets you the most. Um, and I, I always kind of say that in a lot of relationships that are become meaningful, there's this moment where they say this one thing and you go, oh, just this one thing that they say in one conversation. You're like, ah, that's my guy. 
I love like, that. That's the one. And so you kind of wait for that moment. There should be something where there's some connection point, some access point where after that, you're like, okay, I had a great moment with that one. And if you have a great moment with multiple people, yeah, you know, from there, I don't know, just, I guess you just got to pick one. Yeah. The truth is, you know, music lawyers should know, if they're accomplished, they should know all the same things. Yeah. You know. So then um, if you have a good connection and One thing good. I will say though, th- this is a definite is, you know, genres are different. Oh, and deals cool. are different in different genres. Yeah. You know? um, the way the record labels operate will be different among different genres. You know, not, deals are not like, I mean, this, the fundamental record deal is the same yeah. uh, across most, across all genres with some limited exceptions. But, um, you know, there are different practices among the different, the different genres. And so, you know, if you are a hip hop artist, you know, maybe a lawyer who does only metal or mostly metal wouldn't be the best. Right. And the same thing with vice versa. And also because so much of, you know, what we do um, involve, like once you know the record labels well, you know the, the people who are running the labels, you know their lawyers, you know the A&R people, then, you know, you can do a lot more for your artists at that point. So it is good to find a lawyer who is in a similar pocket as you. Now, I would caution you against finding a lawyer who is solely in your pocket. One of the things that I always like to say to clients, potential clients that I'm talking to, I mention the fact that our roster encompasses stuff like Chuck Berry, stuff like big Frida yeah but also fit for an autopsy yeah you know also you know the the death metal and, and all that stuff I, I I like that variety because we have everything from mainstream hip-hop to yeah you know New Orleans bounce to classic rock and I do believe that that gives us a broad perspective yeah. on how not just a specific deal fits within its genre but how the genre fits within the industry, how the deal fits within the industry. Yeah. And from there, you can kind of triangulate the deal a little yeah. bit better. That's amazing. Um, and I'll jump in just real quick to say, like, to, to your point, in finding, like, somebody that you jive with, like, you and I got along so, so well, right? right? And you've done so many of the deals for my artists because I think another thing to add to that is, like, you have to think when you get to this point, people are people. Like if you're starting to get to these professional relationships, you're going to be talking to these people a lot. So you want to work with somebody that you like and that you can have fun on the phone with and vibe with because there's going to be a lot of that time. And then the other thing is uh, a credit to what you were saying about knowing different labels and deals. As you and I have now had the opportunity to work in different genres, it has been really helpful that, you know, we'll look at a certain indie deal and we'll look at a certain duration and it's like, oh, cool, interesting, like they want publishing here or they want this many albums, this is the budget. That's funny that this label offered this much more money, but they're prioritizing this. So it is cool that you have that experience. I guess, you know, that's just a, that's just you having the time in. That's you being down to have done it all because right. now you have that, the contrast of all of them. Yeah, and, and on that on that topic, you know, because you and I, you know, have had great conversations, you know, about shared clients, just about life in general as well. Yeah. But, you know, if you got a lawyer who's not answering your fucking calls, yeah. You know, get rid of them. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's a big thing. Like a lot of people, they get, um, you know, they get kind of starstruck by some lawyers and their clientele. And then they will put up with that lawyer ignoring them, mm-hmm. not answering them, not, or, or treating them kind of shitty when they're on the phone, um, talking down to them. Uh, and don't deal with that. Yeah. You, don't, you know, don't deal with that. One thing that I always want artists who are listening to this to remember is that you are the ones with talent. Yeah. You are the reason why all of this industry exists. These people are lucky to work with you. Yeah. Not the other way around. Now, they can help you a lot. Lawyers can help artists a lot. Lawyers are very valuable. The right lawyers in the right situation can do the right shit for you. But this industry exists because of you, the one with talent. It's not because of me. 
Yeah. And on top of that, when I am your lawyer, you are my boss. If if and, and I work for you, yeah. right? If I'm not answering your calls, if I'm not treating you with respect, then do not work with me. And I, I should say I shouldn't say that from a first person perspective because I would like to think that's not me. <laughs> yeah, um, but like but it, just as the example, yeah, yeah. as the example, just never forget that. That's beautiful. So then the other part, the thing that I was going to get to, which you kind of touched on, is okay. You found your right lawyer. You found your team. You figured that out. You're you're relevant enough that people care. Now record labels are paying attention to you. How do you negotiate and navigate what is a good deal? You know, that that is, every, I feel like every question that you've asked me, I always have this, well, that's not an easy answer. Um, because, of course, I guess nothing is. No, and I, again, it's like these are very broad questions and people do have these specific, you know, like it's, yeah. it's not going to be perfect because everything yeah. is a little bit different. But I remember you like, the reason I asked that question is you were kind of telling me about like A and B yeah, right. almost of like, yeah. so maybe just touch on that. Yeah, no, of course. So, you know, uh, one thing I will say, you know, again, ha having a lawyer who's experienced with your genre and knows a little bit about the expectations within the, the specific labels, that that can certainly be helpful for you to just kind of put it in a category. Is how does this compare to what else is out there? What do other deals look like? Yeah. Um, but even if you get a totally standard offer from a label within your genre, and it just might not be right for you, you might say, no, I don't want to do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. So at the end of the day, you know, listen to your lawyer, listen to your manager about what your expectations should be. I always feel like oh, cool. sometimes my job is managing expectations. Yeah. You know, I, I meet an artist who is, you know, a developing indie rock band and their whole thing is we just, we just want to keep our masters and sign a one record deal. And I will be like, you know, look, those those deals do exist. I do those deals. I mm -hmm. call them the magical deals that <laughs> I don't want most of my clients to know about. Um, you know, there's, yeah, they do exist. And there yeah. are some wonderful deals out there that you can get that don't even seem real. Um, but, you know, make sure that you, for, for me, what I have to do is manage expectations a lot of the times, make sure that they understand like how a deal fits within their genre, how a deal fits within, for an artist of their size, yeah. and what those expectations should be. Because you'd have to have a heck of a lot of leverage to get a deal like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And this Which is, yeah. maybe even comes back to the first point you said of like, if you're good enough that people are paying attention to you and your product, like the better you are when you get to the point of needing the help and the labels are coming to you, you probably have more leverage. Anyway, yeah. continue. Yeah, no, and that's, and that's what, you know, we talked about a little bit um, before the podcast is, you know, we're at a really interesting time in the music business where there are these, there's, you know, you can do stuff on your own now. And, and that was the, oh, that was the promise of the digital era for the last 20 years. Yeah. It did not manifest itself in reality until the last three to five years. Yeah. So people have been saying, yeah, you, know, wow. you control your own career, like yeah. direct to the consumer. Well, first of all, it's not direct to consumer. You're using fucking Spotify for one. Fair. Spotify, keep in mind is a pretty large corporation. So it's not like you're going direct to the consumer. Yeah. Um, you're using huge aggregators to get <laughs> yeah, them, right? yeah. Um, so don't fool yourself. Um, but, you know, there, there was this promise of the digital era that artists were going to be able to take back the control. Um, but the truth is, you know, that, that has not happened. The fact, the fact of the matter is the major labels still distribute 85% of the music. Is it 85? It's 85%, wow. which is actually higher than it was in the 90s uh, when it was around 80%. <laughs> Funny. So, you know, the digital era... Um, th there was this promise that everything's going to be different. You're going to be able to command your own deals. You know, you're going to be able to state your own terms. And for most of the time, that was uh, it was that was incorrect. Nowadays, it kind of is. <laughs> it's more correct now. And so I always kind of say now, there's column A and column B. Um, column A is the traditional sort of deal that still exists. A lot of artists, most artists, are still signing those. You know, might be three records, might be two, might be as much as four. If it's a major label deal, you're looking at five. If you're a new artist that doesn't have crazy stupid leverage. 
um, you know, there is that that category, the, the what I would call them A. Yeah. The old school record deal still yeah. exists most of the time. Um, but nowadays there's column B. And column B is those artists who just for whatever, they've built up the leverage on their own. They got crazy numbers on Spotify. They got crazy fans. They got great interactions on Instagram. They're you know, all of the other shit that I I don't I don't even get into because I'm too old for it. Uh, you, know, you know, but they yeah, got they're, all, they're ripping on TikTok. They're yeah, all yeah. all the relevant things. Yeah, they're doing all that stuff. Those artists now can sometimes get these crazy, stupid deals. And I've done enough of these to to know that they exist and try to not let them uh, influence the way I see the standard deals when that's what's right for an artist. Um, but these column B deals, they're, you know, sometimes you're, you're keeping your masters, maybe even, you know, I did one recently. It was a significant amount of money for a five-year license and then one record on a five-year license. Sick. And the money on that one for an indie, and it was an independent label. And, you know, it's, it's just, it was, it's really, it's, a, it's, it's one of those deals that, again, I don't want everyone in column A to expect that. Because they're right. not going to get that. That yeah. artist had incredible numbers. That artist had been touring like crazy. That artist had great leverage and that was in a position to be able to get that sort of a deal. Yeah. Um, now, most artists can't get there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of artists are still signing those column A deals. And again, I believe I believe in record labels. Yeah. I am not one of those people that thinks that record labels will ever no longer be relevant. Yeah. Never. Or they, they, will, they will always be valuable. Yeah. Um, and the people that I know at record labels, they are in it because they love music because they love the artists that they work for. They want to make those artists succeed. And there's been a lot of negativity around record labels forever right. in the music press. But another thing I would say is just a piece of advice is take the music press with a grain of salt. I always say this, music journalists don't get paid to be right. They get paid to write. <laughs> and that's a big difference. How yeah. do you, why do you get paid to write? Because people are reading what you write, which means you're writing what people want to read, which yeah. means you're not writing what's right. You're writing what's read. All right. And so don't listen to a lot of those people. Talk to the managers, talk to the agents, talk to the lawyers. Those are the ones who are going to be able to give you a more realistic perspective about what to expect, what kind of deal you should expect, what to hold out for, what not to hold out for. You know, those are the ones. Well, I was just going to say, we say hold out for, not hold out for. Like I was going to say, when you break it down and like compare deals like that, you know, maybe you're at a spot as an artist where you really feel like you've hit your ceiling of what you can do on your own. And you're starting to get those traditional type deals coming to you. Maybe that's the move because without that, you won't get any further. And with that deal, it's like, cool, you're signing away a little bit more rights for a longer time, right. whatever. But you're also getting now a label that cares about you, that has you for three or four albums we'll or whatever. And will be for everything for you. And will be in both vested interest of grow this artist. And yeah. then after that term, maybe you're bigger and you have more leverage. So maybe that's the perfect thing. Or maybe you're at a spot in your career where things are going so well that you feel like you have a little bit more gas before you do need a label and you can keep going yeah. on your own. And then maybe that like more, the newer column B deal does apply to you and you think that you can really get there. Yeah. I think, I think you have to pay attention to your momentum and when your momentum feels like it is peaking. Yeah. Because I feel like there is a, a and this is something I say a lot, a lot of musicians have live under the fallacy that what got me here will get me there. Mm. So I have done X, Y, and Z, and I've gotten to this position where I have these fans and I have this level of success. So therefore, I have to keep doing what I'm doing and it will keep getting bigger. The analogy that I draw is a climbing wall. Mm. I, I took my kids to a climbing wall not long ago, and there's one, you know, it goes straight up for a little while, and then it starts curving out for, you know, out, out, you know, and now yeah, all of a sudden- Yeah, like it's like a reverse right, incline, reverses, like you're dangling. Right? Yeah. So like- the skills, the muscle groups, the ability that gets you up to that point where it starts curving out are not the same skills, not the same muscle groups, not the same know-how that's going to be allow you to then climb up the rest of that fucking inverted whatever it is. Yeah. You know, and it's and so you just you cannot assume what got me here will get me there. 
And you have to, and not, not that it will never, but you cannot naturally assume that. It is often an entirely different skill set that takes you from that peak you were able to reach on your own yeah. to that peak that you can't actually reach. And that skill set is often shit that A, you don't know how to do. Yeah. And B, you shouldn't be spending your time on yeah. because it is your job to be a talented musician. Right. Yeah, because you, you can get caught up in the wrong thing then and spend all of the too much time where you could be creating and you could be doing all of the things as an artist and a musician, getting obsessed with the business and like, yeah, yeah like I really like the way you put that because I, I think that you're right that people paint the picture of teams or, or, or managers, labels, industry being a bad thing where it's like, if you find the right ones, they're there to help and they know their strengths and they know that they're not artists and they have these skills that are not being an artist that are very helpful to an artist. Yeah, you know, there's this idea in economics, specialization. And the analogy that you always draw, and it's perfect for the music business. Let's say there's three people live right next to each other, three neighbors. One of them makes phenomenal bread. Mm. Okay, baskets. And pretty shitty, but workable wagons. <laughs> the next one makes okay bread, phenomenal baskets, and maybe that one, or maybe, okay, you know, wagons again. Yeah. The last one makes phenomenal wagons. Okay, bread. You get what I'm saying? Like, and each of them can make all three if they want. Each of them can make their own wagons, their own bread, and their own baskets, make their bread and take them to all the townspeople and fucking, you know. Or one of them can say, hey, I make great baskets. You make great bread and you make great wagons. Why don't I make the bread? You make the baskets and he'll make the wagons. And now we're going to be having great product, getting there quickly. And it's going to work better for all of us. And a lot of artists, they say, well, I can make my own baskets. I can make my own wagons. Well, you should be making the bread. Yeah. You know, and, and not, not always. Again, there's always exceptions to all of these rules. But, yeah. you know, I always feel like that's really, really poignant um, in the music industry. And a lot of artists, they don't necessarily see it that way. That is so well put. Again, a great analogy. And it just like, it it takes something what feels so complicated and it makes it so simple, right? And again, it's always going to be specific to the artist in the situation. But I think that if you take a step back and look at it and you're honest and humble enough to be like, damn, maybe somebody could be helping me with this or maybe it's time or maybe it's not time. Maybe I think I'm over here needing this and I just need to make better bread right now. Right, exactly, exactly. So exactly. that's that's awesome. I feel like we could talk for literally forever yeah. on this. Um, and I, I try to keep these around an hour just because I feel like that's about as much time as people have to listen to podcasts. I also feel like there could be like a phone, a, a Lauren, and and talk about very specific ch- subjects because you're so knowledgeable and so well-spoken on this. Um but before we do end it, did I miss anything in your story? Is there anything like really important, anything that you did want to add to it? Just because this has been so freaking incredible. Um, man, you know, the big open ended. Yeah. You know, it's funny because whenever, whenever I host a panel or something like that, yeah. I always end with, is there any general piece of advice? And now here you is? are, sucker. And here, and here I am, uh, yeah, stuck in it, um, you know, in that position. You know, here's the thing that I think I would say. Um, and this is to artists, but not just artists, to everyone. The music industry is walking a very, succeeding in the music industry is walking a very fine line between believing in your own myths, which you have to, to be audacious enough to even try this shit. Yeah. But also self-awareness. Yeah. Being self-aware to recognize where your failings are, self-aware to recognize what is working and what is not working, 
self-aware enough to just say, like for me, when I first started as a lawyer, I wanted to be doing pop stuff right out the gate. Why did I end up in punk rock out the gate? Well, it's because that's what was working. That's where I had the first few connections and I just followed my momentum, you know? And so I always feel like whatever role you're in, one of the most important things you have to do is just maintain that balance. You have to be audacious enough to believe in yourself, despite the fact that what you're attempting is almost mathematically impossible. But at the same time, you have to be self-aware enough to recognize that within that, you need to be able to stop and say, this is working, this isn't working. I can do all this crazy shit, but I have to do it in the real world. And that second aspect is you got to bring yourself down to the real world. Believe in yourself and believe in yourself in an unrealistic way Yeah, you have to, but at the same time, it's temperate with reality. Do you want to take that off and drop the mic? <laughs> that was, that was really, really good. It. <laughs> it's not that bad. <laughs> um, dude, that's amazing. That like truly like, thank you for that. And that was so Absolutely. well said. And again, I... I don't really know, like as far as this podcast goes, you know, it's the first thing is I love telling the stories, but as I've had the privilege to have these insanely qualified guests with so much knowledge, like the idea of doing something more specific, right? And coming and talking about just a specific subject or maybe your, your stand-up career. <laughs> <laughs> That'll like, be a short one. I, uh, I think that that's really cool and I, I hope to do more of that as well. So if anybody is listening to this one and just was in it and needs more from you, please let us know because I would love to know how we could, you know, continue telling and helping more people. Um, if anybody wants to find you, social media or whatever, uh, where can people find you? So I would just go to our firm's website, which cool. is Pearson Wells, P-I-E-R-S-O-N-W-E-L-L-S.com. Uh, we're all up, all three of us are up there. All of our email addresses are up there. Um, you know, I just find me there, email me. I'd reference this podcast in your subject line yeah. because that's going to make me look at it. <laughs> yeah, good call. You don't Maybe you don't have the band referral, but at least you got the podcast that's referral. Right. You're, you're right. one step above the blind email. Didn't I got to so. say this just to you, Cram, like, you know, this is, it's awesome that you're doing this. And I, I it's a real, it's some, it's a service that a lot of people need. I, I wish that when I was a young artist, a young musician, something like this could have existed. And there would have been people like you who are out there trying to help people like me back then know what to do. You can see, I'm tearing up a little bit, dude. dude I hope well, you can see that. You... Because it's real, man. It's real. And I, like, these, you know, this is a service. And and that these kids really, really, you kids out there, you people, I say kids all the time. But yeah. I'm 38, so, like, if you're under 30, I can call you a kid. Um, you know, th this is really valuable and really, really helpful for people. You just hit the nail so perfectly on the head of like what I'm going for. Like I just, I remember my early days, 18 years old, being told like, oh, you're the tour manager now and not knowing what that was and wishing that there was a resource where I could learn. And, you know, it's like, I luckily have the access to these brilliant people like yourself. And I know that not oh, everybody sure. does. And it's like, that's all I want to do. I just want to spread that because it's like the more people are educated, the more people know the right people and the right ways to do things, the industry gets better for everyone. Yep. Like no, it, there's so much room for success. Like we were saying, like we're at this like renaissance of music. Everyone can succeed. So like, let's make it better. Let's make people smarter. Let's do it with better etiquette. So thank you for adding to that. Thank you for understanding what I'm trying to do. Holy and shit. One last thing that I want to say Please. to the people who are listening to pay it forward. Yo, yes. That's, I could not agree with that more. Yeah. And we're, and we're all here because of the people who helped us at the right time. Like you were saying those, Absolutely. like the times where you're lucky, where that person believes in you, where they shouldn't have. Absolutely. Pay that forward. Keep it going. 
Fuck yeah, dude. Dude, thank you. <laughs> there you go. Lauren's story. I freaking loved it. I hope you did too. If you did, make sure to drop him a line on Instagram. He's at Lauren, L-O-R-E-N-S Wells, W-E-L-L-S. I know it'll mean a lot to him to hear that this helped anybody out there. So go ahead and do that. I'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks for listening.